The Guardian. You're listening to the Futurescape Short Stories podcast, in which writers imagine what life will be like in the year 2025. The project is an exciting collaboration between Sony and Forum for the Future. It encourages people to think more deeply about the possibilities for our future. In this edition, we feature Michael Marshall Smith reading his story, The Good Listener. I got into Santa Cruz just after noon, an easy three-hour drive up from Big Sur. My mood was murky, and I found Santa Cruz's road system difficult to pass once I got off the highway, so I asked the rental car to negotiate the last few miles by itself. The nav was so accustomed to me feeding it very specific route instructions, gleaned from the itinerary, reconstructed from location services data off my father's phone, that it asked if I was sure about this. I said I was, and it told me that it would guide me to the Dream Inn by the most efficient means it could determine. I said that would be fine. In the meantime, it spooled my notes up onto the windshield because that's what I'd asked for every day at this point. I knew what they held for this evening, and so I just turned the wheel and pressed the gas and tapped the brake and watched out the window as the car piloted me smoothly toward the ocean, the last stop on my journey, and it's one very small mystery. I remember the first truly adult thing my father said to me. I would have been around 15, and we were on the deck after an evening meal at home. I asked him why he didn't say much at such events, except because I was 15. What I actually said was along the lines of, why was he so quiet and why didn't he join in the conversation like other people's more fun and engaged dads, but instead just sitting there looking like he was thinking something else the whole damn time. He was leaning against the rail, smoking a cigarette, and looking out into the woods, and after a moment he turned and looked at me, coolly, but with something I later came to understand was a measured and long-game kind of love. And he said, There came a point when you and your sister started talking and I realized that with the two of you and your mom, there was just never going to be that much dead air in the family. And I could either fight to get out every damned sentence or not. I don't remember my reply. I'm sure it was smart. Would have earned a high five from my school buddies for getting off a good one against the older generation, but I doubt it was thoughtful or very polite. This would have been around late 2011, early 2012. Six years later, my parents split after my mom hooked up with a colleague. In 2020, the divorce went through. I remember my mom making a joke at the party that evening, her arm around said colleague, about how finally she'd got 2020 vision of reality back. I didn't laugh. By then I was at college and had started to dimly appreciate that the world was a little more complicated than I'd thought. It also just seemed mean-spirited. On 14th of November 2025, my dad was killed in a car accident. The Dream Inn stands on a cliff above Cal Beach, somewhere you'll have heard of if you're a surfer. It and Steamer Lane just along the way are meccas for those who are into the sport, which does not include me. The hotel stands upon the cliff and hangs over it, in fact, a draping 1960s-styled structure re-gooded into boutique hotel status 20 years ago and still doing well. I put my car in the lot opposite. There was no entry for valet parking on my dad's bill for his stay, so I assumed that was what he'd done too, and carried my bag across the road. I checked into the room next to the one he'd taken for three nights. I put the suitcase on the bed and went out onto the balcony to look at the sea. It was sunny and clear, and I could see all the way across the bay to Monterey. From the eighth floor, all you could hear was the sound of waves and the barking of sea lions. I took my dad's phone out of my pocket and held it in my hand. 
It had been in my possession for a little over five months from the day when we all visited his place in the week after his death. As we stood in his little apartment, wondering what we were supposed to be feeling and how on earth to articulate it, I noticed the phone on the table by the window. It was part of the collection of belongings that had been salvaged from his car after the wreck, and it caught my eye because it was the same one he'd had the first time I'd come to visit him in the city after the divorce became final. He'd moved back to New York three months before, and we'd gone walking around Greenwich Village, and then sat drinking coffees outside of some place he'd evidently become familiar with. And he took me by surprise in two ways. First, by talking. It wasn't like he said so much, but he said something. I'd undertaken the trip out of a feeling of duty, and because the party my mom had held had made me feel uncomfortable. I'd not expected much to come of it. I certainly hadn't expected him to sit asking me questions and apparently engaging with the answers. I was also struck by the fact that the phone he put on the table was brand spanking new, and in fact the same model that I had myself. I commented on this. Well, yeah, he said, looking sheepish. I don't have communication on tap like I used to in the old days, so I have to make a little bit more effort myself. After that, the conversation dried up and it felt more like business as usual. The phone on the table by the window in his apartment was the same one, looking a little battered and bordering on retro, what with it being five years old. I slipped it in my pocket without asking my mom or sister if it was okay. I figured they wouldn't care. And I'm sure I was right. I spent the first day in Santa Cruz following the itinerary as closely as possible, as I had throughout my trip. I went to the two coffee shops he'd stopped at and also the restaurant where he'd taken lunch. I matched the times as best I could, though I ate and drank what I wanted. The second-hand bookstore he'd visited was closed for the day. I couldn't be sure exactly what period he'd spent there, but I walked away a couple of minutes after four, the time at which his accounts logged that he'd paid $26.14, including tax, for a book on local history. Early evening I ate a burger in a place called Betty's on Pacific, the main drag. Again, I ate what I wanted, which is what he would have done. Then I went back to the hotel. It was still early, but it appeared that he'd done that too, according to a speak logged at 9.34, which told the world, or the portion of it listening on that network, that he was about to turn in. Tired, I guess. He'd been nearly 30 years older than me, of course. I don't know how it went for him, but it took me a long while to get to sleep. Tomorrow was the last but one day of the trip, and also the big one. Not the last day, but the day with a hole. I gradually started to visit my dad more often in New York. On one of these trips about a year and a half ago, he mentioned how he'd always wanted to make the drive up from L.A. to San Francisco up the Pacific Coast Highway, and now he was going to go ahead and do it. I asked him whether most people didn't make the journey the other way, heading south. Aha, he said, but if you drive north, then the driver gets the best view of the sea all the way. Of course, if you shared the driving, you'd have to share that too, but there'd be other advantages. It's too subtle for me. I didn't get it. By the time I got that he'd been issuing a low-key invitation, he was already dead. I was very busy at work, and even if I'd realized, I would have said that I didn't have the time. Things were sufficiently affable enough between us by then that I would have gone ahead and made the mistake of thinking it would be no big deal if I didn't go. I would have assumed there would be some other time. My dad's phone lay in a drawer in my house for five months after he died, and then one night, for some reason, it occurred to me to take it out. I guess I was missing him or something, maybe regretting all the silences there had been now that there was no way of filling them. As I held the phone in my hands, a thought occurred to me. I dug in another of my drawers and, sure enough, found the charger I'd had for the same phone. The stores may be full of new tech, but there's an awful lot of the old stuff still knocking around in people's homes. 
I slotted it in the wall and plugged the other end in the phone, savouring the old-school vibe of having to connect power to a device by wires, rather than leaving it on an inductance pad. Seconds later, the screen blinked into life. It even had reception. Cancelling his contract had obviously been missed in the post-death tidy-up. I pressed the virtual home button. It pinged, and the OS started bleating about the million software upgrades that had happened in the intervening months. I paused them all, not wanting to change the state of the phone, as it had been on the day that he died. I had a look around it, and I was surprised. There were a lot of apps on the phone, and not just what I would have expected. Sure, there were productivity apps and business reference material and travel guides, but also Twitter and Speak and Been There and Tell Me Stuff and Trip Buddies and even Godpop. For a guy I remembered as extremely challenged in the communication department, he sure had a lot of hooks into the outside world. I tried kicking up Speak, my own social network of choice, but hit a login screen. After so long dead, the phone needed everything to be logged into again. Feeling sad, and as if this was symbolic of something or other, I put the phone down. But then I picked it up again, and after a few minutes found what I was looking for, his password database app. I assumed I'd be screwed there too, that he'd have used iCog or voice gesture like any normal person, but when I ran my thumb over the virtual keyboard, a dialogue swiveled into view saying I'd got the password wrong. This came close enough to implying that he'd used a type sequence of letters and or numbers that I spent the next two hours, with the help of a few beers, trying to work it out. And I got there in the end. Helen and Noel Scott. The names of his children and ex-wife all run together. Had he chosen this password before the divorce or afterwards? I didn't know. It didn't matter. It was still hard to think about. I spent the morning and afternoon of my second day in Santa Cruz walking. There was a breakfast check-in at the Ideal Grill, a quickie lunch at the Sputty's concession on the boardwalk, and a transaction at the Starbucks up on West Cliff. The last had just closed down and been turned into a student-oriented lentil and chai outfit, but I stuck it out. There was an ATM outside, as I'd known there would be, and I got some money from it. I dawdled on the way back to the hotel, trying to ensure that I got back at around the same time I believed him to have done. I was a few minutes early, getting to the room at 4.56, ten minutes before he'd rung down for a room service pot of tea as logged on his online receipt, but close enough. I took a shower and changed my clothes. Dad had always been a stickler for marking a difference between the day and the evening in exactly these ways, and then I sat at the end of the bed. A few minutes later, it was 5.27, and I was in the hole. Once I'd gained entry to the password database, I unlocked and logged into everything on his phone, and I was stunned. On Speak, he'd had over 600 followers and had been following around the same number. Not movie-star level, of course, far less than some mouthy blogger, but for an unsociable guy in his late 50s, it was still pretty solid. Even more surprising to me were the check-in apps. He'd logged everything in the last few years. Every time he went to a cafe, restaurant, bar or store, there it was. Then the travel apps, hotels, flights, even car rentals, all logged and rated. I'd drunk enough beer by this point that I was open to the maudlin, and it struck me that maybe he'd done this because he didn't have a wife to share this stuff with anymore. Maybe. Maybe he actually liked using all this social stuff. Maybe it was a game. Maybe he'd just been really bored. Either way, that's when I got the idea. I tapped my own phone to wake the TV PC. My friends think I'm a throwback for sleeping the thing when I'm not using it, but if you have the occasional tendency to talk to yourself when you're alone, then the ever-listening ear of voice cog can lead to unexpected and unhelpful results. I told the TV to expect a list, and then read out all of my dad's sites, their login passwords, and gave it the dates and asked it to triangulate with all available APIs. Forty seconds later, a rough outline appeared on the screen. 
I finally allowed my dad's phone to download all the software updates it had stacked and then got the TV to mix in the results from onboard location services together with cached records from his bank accounts. In five minutes, I had it, chapter and verse. And a week later, I flew into LA. The itinerary, as I took to calling it, was the summation of everything my father's phone and web services had to tell me about his trip up the Pacific Coast Highway. The web is very, very good at this stuff now. If you let it hook into the outlets of all the sites you belong to, all the status updates and logins you've made, consciously or otherwise, every time you've waved your phone over an NFT terminal to pay for goods or services, every time you've asked a question of a Netlink sat-nav or a sponsored street corner ask-me post, and every time your phone sends up a blip to establish the nearest mast, it knows a lot. It listens to everything that we say and do, and it remembers it all. The past doesn't fall away like it used to, disappearing behind as you keep moving forward. Experience is saved and recalled. Somewhere in the cloud is everything you've done, and if you want, you can get it back. I couldn't get him back, of course, but now I had the itinerary. I should have gone with him. I decided to do the best I could, five months too late. The whole is a period of 14 hours. It stretches from early evening on the second last day of his trip until 9.26 the following morning when he bought, and rated highly, a coffee at an indie store downtown. It's not such a big or inexplicable hole. He was staying at the Dream Inn, of course, I knew that, and I wasn't expecting that he'd suddenly gone to the moon and back. There was no record of an evening meal, however, which was unique in the entire trip and thus mildly intriguing. No record of anything being bought or done during that entire period, in fact, though there'd been an ATM withdrawal of $100 in the afternoon, which is why I'd done the same. There was no way of filling in the missing time. I even had the software retriangulate in the hope it had missed something before, but nothing came. It was blank. Dead air. I needed to fill it somehow. I'd been hoping an idea would come to me, a particular way of spending the evening that might seem an appropriate means of honouring him. It didn't. I wasn't feeling in an inspired mood. Tomorrow would be the last day of my trip. Of his trip. The day after that, he'd left the hotel just before 11 and drove through town, buying $152.50 worth of gas and some bottled water on the outskirts, before heading onto Highway 17 to start the journey to San Francisco Airport. At 13.47, a poorly maintained truck lost its load across both lanes, resulting in the random and pointless death of my father and five other road users. His death was logged at 14.22. Superstitiously, perhaps, I was intending to drive to the airport via another route. I wanted to replicate the trip, but I'm not a total nutcase. I sat in the hotel room for an hour, getting bored and sad, and then I realised this was dumb and stood up. I left the hotel intending to just go for a walk. My dad liked walking a lot, and this could well have been what he did that night, missing out on his supper by accident and figuring he could stand it for once, before winding up back in the room and munching on the free cookies they provided, and then going to bed early again. Travelling by yourself can be interesting and is doubtless good for the soul, but there comes a point where you've read as much as you can read for one day. None of the e-readers on his phone showed a log of having been used that evening. As I stood outside the hotel, I remembered reading that it had a bar somewhere and decided I'd go for a beer first. This bar turned out not to be in the main building, which is why I've missed it so far, but in a facility attached to it by a corridor. When I walked in, I wished I'd come the night before, whether it was on the itinerary or not. It was quiet and calm and empty, with dimly lit tables in front of huge plate glass windows giving a great view onto the wharf and the ocean. I sat up at the bar, which was for the moment deserted. A few minutes later, a woman came from out back. She was in her late forties, I'd guess, blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail. She looked like she ran or hiked. When she saw me, she frowned and seemed to hesitate before coming over. 
I ordered the beer and turned to look out over the sea. As sometimes happens, the first beer made me decide a second would be a good idea. The bar had started to fill up in the meantime, full of people in suits, and I had to wait a while because the woman seemed to be running the place single-handedly. As she eventually pulled my Sierra Nevada, I caught her looking at me again. Everything okay? I asked. She smiled hurriedly and shook her head, then evidently decided to say what was on her mind. You look familiar, she said. Have you been here before? I shook my head. My dad came here once, though, about five months ago. We look alike. What was his name? Rick Motts. Her reaction to this was hard to interpret. She went down to the other end of the bar to serve another customer. Half an hour later, I ordered another. In the meantime, I'd watched the sun go down over the bay, eaten a lot of peanuts. I'd come up with a question I wanted to ask. As she handed me my drink, I asked it. So, did you and my dad talk at all? Sure. Just a few words, or... Oh no, more than that. It was, it was a really quiet night. Most of the evening he was the only person in here. She shrugged, as if that was no big deal. It was not entirely convincing. He died, I said. It was clumsy and graceless, but I didn't know how else to say it. She looked shocked. I told her how it had happened. That's terrible, she said, in a way that seemed sincere. I drank a mouthful to let the moment dissipate. So, you guys chatted? Quite a bit. What about? Oh, I don't remember. Something, I guess. You know how that goes. He made me laugh. A lot. He did? For sure. He was funny. He was a good listener, too. She left to deal with a new party of raucous business people, fresh out of a brainstorming session. I drank my beer slowly and looked out through the window at the remaining hints of the view of the beach. I thought about my dad, and I wondered whether all the time I'd been growing up, he hadn't been not speaking. I wondered if he'd been listening instead. I ordered and drank one more beer and was about to auto-pay by Tabat when I realized that was wrong. I got out my wallet and paid with some of the cash from the ATM instead, as, I was now guessing, he'd done. As I got up to leave, the waitress came over. She was carrying a tray of dirty glasses and she looked tired, but nonetheless she came the length of the bar to say goodbye. I'm real sorry to hear about your dad, she said. I nodded, not knowing what to say, and feeling, for the first time on the entire trip, completely empty and as if I wanted to cry. Thank you. You miss him? I nodded and she nodded too. She looked out of the window into the blackness over the ocean. He was a nice man, she said. Next day, I followed the itinerary. Coffee shops, another bookstore, this and that. The day afterwards, I went home, driving up to SFO via the coast road rather than taking Highway 17 inland. I made it back in one piece. I'm glad I was able to trace the trip I didn't take. I'm glad he went on the journey he'd always wanted. I'm glad he stayed at the Dream Inn. And I'm glad he decided to head down to the bar. I still don't know for sure when my father spent the missing night, maybe in his hotel room, maybe not. Though I suspect I know how. I'm happy for the hole to remain. I no longer feel the need to fill it. There have always been silences in the world, and that's the way it should be. There should be gaps. Sometimes it's in those moments of silence, of dead air, that the meaningful things happen. It's good that we have things listening to all our stories now, keeping track of everything we have been and done. It's even better if, like the best listeners, they turn a deaf ear from time to time. The Guardian's Claire Armitstead 
spoke to Michael about his story. Michael, you write thrillers as Michael Marshall and SF and horror as Michael Marshall Smith. Which of you wrote this story? Oh, it's a difficult one. I think uh, it was probably Michael Marshall Smith that wrote this story. It's one of those th- weird things about uh, about the publishing world, really, which is that, that, that people often like to come to some sort of published work with an understanding of what kind of thing they're going to get. When I when I write as Michael Marshall, it tends to be it tends to be more straight down the line thrillers, I guess. Whereas the beauty of having the Michael Marshall Smith name, which is what I started out under, is that I've always felt much more free to do sort of speculative fiction, either speculative in terms of futuristic or in terms of different types of things that that might not be true but are interesting to think about. And obviously when when doing a project like this, thinking about what things might be like in the future, then Michael Marshall Smith felt like a much more comfortable jacket to be wearing. Um, You've called the story The Good Listener and there's a certain irony in that. Can you just explain that? Yeah, well, like everybody else, I, I enjoy the internet. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the different ways of being that it, it brings into our life, the access to information and, and, and all manner of other things. But increasingly, I, I'm also aware, particularly with some of the changes that are happening in, in social networks at the moment and how, how increasingly prevalent um, their penetration into our lives is, that it's we're very aware in our lives of the things that we do, the things that are actions and the things that we say. We're not always aware of the people who are listening and the people who are experiencing what we do. And I think increasingly the internet is, is taking on a big role in that. It's recording everything we look at, everything we say, everything we buy. And I just think it's going to be interesting to see what, now that we've got this sort of extraordinary sort of listening angel tracking our every move. And I, I don't say that necessarily in an ominous way. I just think it's interesting. We've never had this situation before. One of the things that's so fascinating about living at a time like now is seeing, is watching how these new developments are going to affect our lives. Now, you could also read this, as well as a story about surveillance, you could read this as a road trip, which of course is one of the great tropes of 20th century literature. I was quite interested in that choice. The road trip, it has a particular fascination for me. I love the idea of passing through things, you know, being a passenger. The more you move from one place to the next, I think the more active you feel and the more aware of what you're observing. But yes, you're right. It, it is a 20th century thing. But a lot of 20th century things are going to be here in the 21st century too. A lot of 19th century things are going to be here. And I think for me, the interesting thing, particularly when whenever's, whenever one's looking at the future and, and trying to guess what might happen in the future is to remember how much of the past will be present at all times, not just in terms of the types of things that we do, but the types of technologies we're still using. And of course, human nature and and the kind of things that, that we do and the kind of things that we care about, which, if not you know, ever present and eternal must be the closest thing that we have. And so when trying to think about what technologies might bring into our lives, I was very conscious of the fact that many, many things would be the same. It's the story of a son retracing his father's final footsteps. Um, there's a, a, a big generational thing going on here, which I was also interested by, um, that a son's surprised that his father had any grasp of technology. Yeah, well, I think, and I, you know, it's something that we all see. We, you know, many of us have tried to explain certain aspects of the internet. I tried to explain um, the concept of the cloud to my dad the other day, and it didn't go well. And in the end, I think he basically just accepted that this is one of the things that the, the world was bringing into his life, which he was never going to quite understand, and that would affect his life in ways that he would never quite get a grasp on. We are very aware of that sort of generational gap when it comes to new technologies, but. It's also very easy, I think, for for the younger generation to forget that the older generation was the younger generation once too, and that many of their concerns, many of the things they've done, many of the things they care about 
are exactly the same. And it may be that some of these new technologies, as they become more and more transparent, you know, I'd like to think that maybe they'll help us to understand that that just because somebody's got gray hair and wrinkly and, and, and can't move so fast and doesn't overtly understand some of these things, they're still exactly the same type of person. And I think part of what I was trying to get at in this story was this sort of possibly slightly hopeful idea that this type of technology might in some ways help us to, to break down some of the walls between understanding the generations. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.